0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today we're going to learn about the extraordinary life of Mia Peterson, a powerful advocate for people with disabilities who passed away in 2021. And then later in the hour, it has been a very good year for readers who are also music lovers. I'll talk with IPR's Lindsay Moon about some great new music memoirs. But first... It's time to go back to the State Historical Museum of Iowa. After five years of navigating around building renovations, the museum is fully reopened and features a new exhibit called Civics in Action. Leo Landis is state curator of the State Historical Society of Iowa. Hello, Leo.
0: Good morning, Charity.
1: And congratulations. I realize it's been about a month since you guys have been fully reopened and... It's it's been a long five years for all of you working around construction, hasn't it?
0: it? It has. And it's it's even more exciting because the two airplanes, the Curtis Pusher and the uh, Benoit airplane from Oscar and Mary Solbrig is both of those are hanging. The, those went up last week. so Oh,
1: very exciting. So all the work is done now.
0: <laughs> it, pretty much. We've got uh, some crates. My colleague Kay Coates is still doing a little bit of cleanup, but it's looking great.
1: Beautiful. And so... Uh, Just for people who haven't been following along closely, I mean, these have been extensive renovations that were needed because there were some structural problems with the building, right?
0: Exactly right. The building had leaked since it opened in 1987. And so uh, airplanes that had been hanging, both those that I mentioned, uh, had had occasional small amounts of water damage. So we had a conservator come in and do some treatments on those two planes before they went back up. Uh, the skylight system is gone that had leaked, as I said. Uh, pipes have been replaced. So a $13 million project is, is now done.
1: And that means that all of these treasures are far more safe than they were before because you don't have water leaking into the building, so that's exciting.
0: Right, It was it was bad for guests and for artifacts, too. Right,
1: right. So this new exhibit, Civics in Action, is is one of the, the wonderful things that people who are now ready to go back to the State Historical Museum will see. Tell me a little bit about your vision for this exhibit.
0: Sure. We've done exhibits around the Iowa caucuses in the past, and with changes there, we knew we wanted to do uh, some uh, storytelling around the caucuses still, but really compel Iowans to be more civically engaged in general. So uh, we give you know the background that you'd expect on the foundations of our republic with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the Iowa Constitution, just to you know make pe- help people. We hope be inspired and understand those stories. But then we move into Iowa stories around communication devices and, and methods, uh, the political process. Also, uh, issues of civic engagement in our state's past, and then moving into Iowans of civic action, and then what you can do.
1: Well, and it's you know the the caucuses have kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the room for I don't know my entire lifetime and a little bit <laughs> a little bit beyond that. So it's a wonderful reminder that Iowa has been an important state. Changes have been made in Iowa. People have been civically engaged. There have been some incredible leaders that have come out of Iowa. I mean, this we have a long tradition that's bigger than the caucuses.
0: That's exactly right. One of the fun things with this exhibit was to find photos of presidential visits as part of campaign efforts in the past. So we've got uh, a photo of former President Theodore Roosevelt up in northwest Iowa uh, campaigning in the early 1900s. He's, he's in a out of office by that time, but campaigning for Republicans. We've got Harry Truman's whistle-stop campaign. So reminding people, even before the Iowa caucuses, our state has always played a big political role.
1: Well, let's talk about the, there are five different major issues of civic engagement in Iowa history that you focus on in the exhibit. And let's start with suffrage. Tell me a little bit about what you can teach us about suffrage.
0: Sure. That's one that, you know, uh, we talk about a lot. In our nation's history, who has been allowed to vote and uh, how our laws have been passed to say, you know, and, and and this is one of those things that struck me. One of our big constitutional pushes uh, in the past was the 1868 constitutional change that gave black men the right to vote or non-white men the right to vote. And women thought they might get that uh, around the same time. And then there were some issues that kept women from getting the vote in Iowa until 1920, at least around candidate collections. So uh, telling some of those stories that you'd expect a little bit on Carrie Chapman Cat. Uh instead of using kind of that standard photo of her, though, we have a photo of her in our collections in Des Moines of her from her wedding day uh, in Mason City in, in the 1870s as she was just getting started in political activity. So some, some stories that a lot of folks know, but putting a different spin on them, too.
1: You also focus on temperance and and prohibition. Of course, now that's a history that is entangled with suffrage, (laughs) but tell me more about that.
0: Correct, one of the fun uh, campaign slogans that came from uh, one of our lieutenant governors in the 1880s was a schoolhouse on every hilltop and no saloon in the valley. And that was something that Iowa Republicans used as a uh, a slogan all through the late 1880s. They were the temperance and, and prohibition party of of the state of Iowa when there wasn't a standalone prohibition party, which was active in our state into the 1940s and 1950s. So again, some of these themes in state history that uh, may be a little surprising or or giving a a little more light to in in our state's history.
1: Equality is another one of these issues in civic engagement. That's a a long, long story to tell with many different acts that are continuing. What do you focus on?
0: Yeah, that one with this year being the 150th anniversary of the Kojer case coming out of Keokuk, uh, a school teacher from Quincy, Illinois, who was uh, both European and and African-American ancestry who was barred from dining on a steamship traveling on the Mississippi. So Coger versus the Northwestern Union packet was a Iowa Supreme Court case in 1873. But we we take that from where it's ruled in her favor that uh, public transportation in, in most instances you can't discriminate against. Uh, people of color in Iowa from that point on, uh, though we know it still happened in certain ways, uh, up to the surf ballroom, uh, case of Amos versus Prom in the late 1940s that is settled in the early 1950s. Uh, we tell the Edna Griffin story here in Des Moines. And so some, again, some of those stories, and I know we've we've referenced that surf ballroom story in the past, but that's one well, still- Well, for people
1: who aren't familiar, though, can you tell me about it just briefly?
0: Yeah. LaFon Amos, she and her husband and some uh, friends who were black Iowans were on their way to a concert at the surf ballroom with uh lionel hampton senior and they had been to concerts in the past when they get there and i I think it's 1949 uh they are told they will not be allowed admission because the surf does not allow black patrons and it's really the last major civil rights case in iowa around race it it does go to a district court it doesn't have to go to the iowa supreme court where uh the surf was the management company was a chicago-based uh management company called uh Prom, And so that was that was the Amos is, is LaFon Amos. And then prom is the management company of the surf. So again, the last major case in our state civil rights uh, history.
1: Another um, focus of the exhibit is the movement for American Indian rights. And uh, again, that's something that we also stories continue to be told rights continue to be fought for. But Iowa played an important role in, in a major movement.
0: Right. And no, you have talked about Maria Pearson's story out of uh, first out of uh, Western Iowa and Cass County uh, and then out of Story County, where her husband had worked for the Iowa Department of Transportation, previously called the Iowa Highway Commission. and. In the early 70s, uh, she ends up sitting outside Governor Ray's office until she's able to get an audience with him uh, saying, hey, the Iowa DOT and the state archaeologist's office has a policy of when American Indian remains are found. Those are sent to Iowa City, and in the case of Euro-American bones, those get reburied, and so Iowa needs to have a different uh, protection policy for graves. Uh, The American Indian movement is one, too, that comes out of... uh, Minneapolis as a, a movement, but there was a Des Moines movement, too, that was petitioning uh, Governor Ray. And in fact, it affected the historical museum at the time because we still had human remains on display in the early 1970s from, from Native Americans. So understanding that legacy of American Indian rights that then transitions uh, into today with, with uh, leadership at the settlement and across the state as well.
1: You also tell the story of the 1968 constitutional reform in Iowa. We could spend a long time talking about this, but again, just briefly, tell us what it was about.
0: Yeah, this is one that I think most Iowans do not know, and it was truly bipartisan. There were ads across the state that the five issues that were being debated were should we have an annual legislative session? Should we change the home rule for cities on on spending? and give more authority to communities across the state. Should the governor have line item veto, uh, a legislative reapportionment that still affects us today, it's what sets the 100 House members and 50 Senate members. And there's a little language there, but that's for all practical purposes what it is. And then actually letting salary legislators set their own salaries. So those are the five things that are being debated for the constitutional change of 68. So to me, the, the big one is like, really, we didn't have annual legislative sessions in Iowa till... Uh, 1969 and so that's that's my lifetime and also the line item veto but those other ones are, are big deals too and and the ads that were placed across the state you see David Stanley who's the Republican candidate for US Senate Harold Hughes the u.s candidate for the Demo- US Senate candidate from the Democrats and then uh, Robert Ray the candidate for governor on the Republican side and Paul Franzenberg the Democratic governor so the, the the ads that were placed in the major dailies are on this we all agree vote yes on all five Five constitutional amendments. Uh, it's an effort chaired by uh, William G. Murray, a Republican candidate in the past for governor. He's a professor at Iowa State. And then Robert Fulton, who was the sitting uh, uh, lieutenant governor. So a truly bipartisan effort. And I was just rereading to make sure I had my information right. The the one major group opposed to it, and, and they had a good complaint, was that it's going to cost Iowans more money if there's an annual legislative session. That was the Farm Bureau was the main group opposed to the the constitutional changes. Well, they weren't wrong. It's... <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and we're, we're going to have to take a break here. And I know that you also have just some incredible artifacts on display in addition to the interpretation of all of these stories. And in just a moment, uh, another part of the exhibit are the stories of 10 Iowans of civic action including Mia Peterson. And that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of our conversation. So Leo will be back in just a moment to learn more about Mia Peterson, an extraordinary Iowan, and part of this exhibit. Leo Landis is state curator of the State Historical Society of Iowa. We have been talking about the new Civics in Action exhibit at the newly renovated State Historical Museum of Iowa. The museum is open 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Tuesday through Friday and 9 to 3 on Saturdays. Admission is is as always free. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY
1: and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. One of the outstanding Iowans featured in the new Civics in Action exhibit at the State Historical Museum of Iowa is Mia Peterson, who was a powerful advocate for people with disabilities. Born with Down syndrome, she was one of the first generation of students to benefit from the Education for All Handicapped Children Act of 1975, But she still had to fight for her rights and show doubters what was possible. She grew up in Webster City and ran on her school's cross-country team. She acted in plays. As an adult, she pursued a career in advocacy, moving to Ohio to work for the organization Capabilities Unlimited. She lived there for nine years, much of that independently. She helped to write a national newsletter for people with developmental disabilities, was an accomplished public speaker, co-authored two research papers, and carried the torch before the 2002 Olympic Games. She was the first person with Down syndrome to sit on the board of directors for the National Down Syndrome Society. She passed away in 2021, and this year, Friday, November 24th, has been declared Mia Peterson Self-Advocacy Day in Iowa. We'll learn more about her life in a moment. But first, let's hear from Mia Peterson herself. This is from a video from the National Down Syndrome Society.
2: Hi, my name is Mia Peterson, and I'm on the National Down Syndrome Society's Board of Directors. People with Down Syndrome are unique individuals with many strengths and talents. Everyone has dreams, including people with Down Syndrome. I dream. That one day I will drive a car, have an exercise video, and work on my book. Take the challenge. Take the risk.
0: I like to thank the National Down Syndrome Society and the people like you. Someday, all people with Down syndrome will be able to achieve their dreams.
1: That is the voice of Mia Peterson, and she did achieve many of her dreams. Leo Landis is still here with us. He's state curator of the State Historical Society of Iowa. Mia Peterson is featured in the new exhibit Civics in Action at the State Historical Museum of Iowa. And Jana Peterson-Bessie is also on the line, Mia's younger sister. Hello, Jana. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I want to start with you, Jana, before we talk about how uh, Mia's work and her life is portrayed in the museum. You're four years younger than Mia. So when you were growing up, I'm sure this was just a, a part of your life that you were able to take for granted. But tell me a little bit about what you remember about Mia when you guys were kids.
3: Yeah, Mia and I grew up very close. Um, My parents uh, were very, um, they believed that Mia should be included in the same ways as um, our sister Missy and I were included in our community. And so Mia and I did many things together. You mentioned um, that Mia was on the cross-country team. Mia and I were on that cross-country team together. We were in sports, 4-H, you know, hung out at the pool, had friends together. And so, yeah, it was just uh, definitely a very special relationship growing up.
1: Do you remember a point where you really began to understand how extraordinary she was and how extraordinary the the opportunities that she was able to take advantage of were for a person who was born with Down syndrome when she was born?
3: Um, yes, you know, you mentioned the um, that she was the first person to sit on the National Down Syndrome Society Board of Directors. Um, she also was the first person to give the keynote address at the National Down Syndrome Congress conference. Um, That was in the 1990s and I was in college and I was present when she um, gave that keynote address and it really showed how, um, showed me how this representation really matters. There were um, estimated up to a thousand people in that audience and you know Mia was the first one to be um, on such a large stage representing people with Down syndrome at that national conference. And there were um, people with Down syndrome, you know, children and adults with Down syndrome who were watching that and um, many, many parents. And you could just hear a pin drop in that audience. Wow. It just made such a difference, I think, for people to see her representing on that stage.
1: I, you know, I remember I... I'm about the same age that your sister um, was and I remember growing up, you know that was the beginning of inclusion in the classroom for students with disabilities and it looked very different than it looks now. It was not as inclusive as as it is today. Can you tell me a little bit about your family's philosophy, your parents' philosophy, because they clearly wanted to give Mia the opportunity to fulfill her potential.
3: Yes, um, my parents, Mike and Carol Peterson, were definitely always, um, you know, very uh, clear that Mia was going to be included and really advocated for that. And so that looked Uh, It was, it looked different in different times Um, at first she took a bus to be able to go to a preschool program for people with disabilities. Um, That was before I was um, even born. Um, And then, you know, she was included in her kindergarten classroom, but then was in a self-contained special education classroom um, through much of her education time but you know they worked and worked with teachers who also did share their vision to have mia be included as much as possible to be included in ways that she could be included but then um in high school um she actually um took some classes as uh she was referred to as webster city's first graduate student that she um after finishing um you know, after uh, receiving her uh, diploma, um, she continued on because she was not yet 21 and could continue in education, taking classes that she wanted to take um, in a more mainstreamed way. And that's when she took classes on public speaking and things like that that really helped set up her career.
1: For a person with Down syndrome to have a career at that time was pretty remarkable. And her career was truly remarkable, working as an advocate, moving away from home, living independently. That that seems like that must have been such a huge step to take. Can you tell me a little bit about how it came to be? Sure. So first of all, um, after graduation,
3: um, Mia was working um in a grocery store in Webster City, a Hy-Vee in Webster City, and actually working in kind of uh, customer service roles like that, you know, and being involved in her community was another thing that was really important to Mia um, throughout her life. Um, but she really wanted, you know, you mentioned how she had dreams and she wanted to pursue those dreams like she saw her sisters pursuing. And um, my dad took her to a national conference where they where they had seen there was going to be um, a meeting of um, adults with Down syndrome who um, were going to be starting a newsletter. This effort later became Capabilities Unlimited. So Mia be- Mia, um, uh, put together a portfolio of her writings that she had been working on, and they went uh, and approached the person who was um, starting this effort, S.C. Peterson, and attended those meetings. And um, from there, Mia became a... Um, intern, where she worked um, from Iowa, uh, worked with Capabilities Unlimited, which was located in Ohio, but she was in Iowa. And then as she gained skills, uh, I, they just kind of platched, hatched a plan together, Essie Peterson and Mia, and then bringing that to my parents for her to um, move to Cincinnati for a short-term, short-term stint um, working at Capabilities Unlimited. It was really kind of cool timing that a friend of S.E. Peterson's in Cincinnati, um, their family had had a, a child with Down syndrome, and they were looking for a parent helper as they also had a new baby who could help out with their child with Down syndrome. Mia had worked in daycare in Webster City, and so she also had kind of those skills looking after children. And so she lived in the apartment above their house and helped take care of their young child with Down syndrome while also getting to participate in, um, you know, with her, advance her job with Capabilities Unlimited, being in Ohio. It was supposed to be short term, but it turned into a longer term. She lived in Cincinnati then for almost a decade.
1: Wow. She also did a lot of other things that independent adults do. She fell in love. She had a long-term partner. They traveled together too, right? Yes, uh, Joseph
3: Buchrader, Mia's partner. They went on many cruises. That was kind of their favorite thing to do and other adventures. Um, Joseph, my kids actually called Joseph their Uncle Joe, and he just was visiting us last weekend oh, um, nice. here uh, yeah, at our house. And, uh, yeah, that was a really um, lovely relationship. And um, Mia always said that having a relationship was another one of her dreams, right, being able to have um, that um, In her life.
1: Mia did move back to Iowa in 2005 to be closer to family. I'm sure a lot of people in Iowa knew and loved her. She worked at the Price Chopper. She worked at the YMCA. And uh, I've I've heard that she knew pretty much everybody.
3: Yes. um, I um, saw her at the Price Chopper that her line would always be the longest line, I think, because people just really enjoyed um, seeing Mia and having um, Mia say hello to them. But whether it was in Cincinnati or in Des Moines, if I were walking around Mia's neighborhoods with her, uh, you know, it, we always had to plan a few extra minutes because she was going to have to stop along the way to, to say hello to the many people that she knew. Oh, that's wonderful.
1: And clearly, she's been an incredible inspiration for you, not just personally, but also professionally. You work in the Oregon Office on Disability and Health. Yes, I manage
3: the Oregon Office on Disability and Health. Um, We do work on um, access to care and promoting health equity and well-being of people with disabilities in Oregon.
1: I know that, that Mia developed Alzheimer's, which is common for people with Down syndrome, right?
3: Yes, yes, it's quite common.
1: And she was able to, to live at home with your parents again for the last few years of your life, which I know that your parents have considered that to be really excellent timing because of the pandemic, because then they could care for her instead of being separated from her. But I'm sure that was also a very painful time as well. Um, yes. So I want to bring Leo Landis back into the conversation here, because um, as I mentioned, Mia Peterson is uh, part of this new exhibit, Civics in Action at the State Historical Museum of Iowa. We'll also in a moment talk about Mia Peterson self-advocacy day in Iowa as well. But Leo, tell me a little bit about when you first learned uh, about Mia. I know why you admire her and and felt like this was an important story to tell. But tell me a little bit about it.
0: Sure. We... Uh, or I should say, I I try to pay attention to what's happening uh, through various media and and had seen me as obituary Uh, probably online, though I am a print subscriber to uh, local newspaper. And so uh, saw just, you know, this story of a compelling Iowan who I had not heard of her story. We, again, look for stories uh, that represent broad experiences and and important stories of our state's history, uh, but also those surprising stories that we feel like should should be promoted and, and shared to Iowans. And so learning of Mia's self-advocacy, uh, all the things that she did, you know, it's its the sort of life we all aspire to. And it's like, people should know this story. What's an opportunity? So I reached out to Carol and Mike Peterson, her parents, and said, don't know when we would ever be able to tell this story, but down the road, this is summer of 2021, uh, or shortly thereafter, after Mia passed, said, you know, I would love to talk to you about how we might be able to include Mia's story someday in a, in a museum exhibit.
1: And and I know that the family has shared with you some really precious artifacts. What do you have on display?
0: So, reached out to uh, Mike and Carol, and and then uh, always try to keep uh, her sisters Missy and Jana in the loop too on what's what's happening. Said you know to represent her life in Iowa, her high school letter jacket from Webster City would be a great thing to be able to borrow from the family and have it on display. We, we usually like to only exhibit artifacts that belong to us, but felt like this was such an important story. Could we borrow that letter jacket from Webster City High School from the early 1990s and also then her Olympic torch that uh, she carried when she ran it through Cincinnati as part of the torch relay of 2001-2002. Of so could we borrow those two things? And, and on the torch, just for background, it says, light the fire within. Uh, they're all made that way for the 2002 Olympics and, and just felt like that, you know, exemplified her life. She had that fire. And so could we borrow those two items? And uh, Carol and Mike, reached back out to me along after talking to Missy e and Jana. So they said, sure, we'll loan you the jacket. But now the state of Iowa owns her Olympic torch. So as Iowans, uh, that's something the, the Peterson family donated to the, the State Historical Museum. So both of those are on display in our exhibit.
1: Wow. That's that's so cool. And uh, tell me just briefly about Mia Peterson's self-advocacy day. This is uh, Friday, November 24th, a statewide declaration in Iowa on what would have been her 50th birthday.
0: So we reached out to uh, Governor Reynolds and let her know this story. It was uh, Ambassador Branstad actually wrote a letter of support to, and it, it is just Mia Peterson Day in Iowa now, uh, which is okay. Uh, we'll promote her self-advocacy through that. But uh, we're going to have Brady Werger, who's part of the Iowa Developmental Disability Council, we'll read the proclamation tomorrow at one o'clock in the atrium. It'll be a little after that, but program starts at one o'clock. And so uh, sharing Mia's story in a bigger way and reminding Iowa and that, you know, here's an example of somebody who uh, used their voice to talk about what was important to them, and that's something that we all should aspire to.
1: Jana, before we run out of time here, tell me what this means to your family.
3: Our family is just so proud that um, the State Historical Society of Iowa um, has chosen to include Mia in this exhibit where they're telling of so many um, important civic actions um, of Iowans. And of course, we think that the self-advocacy movement and civil rights movement for people with disabilities is such um, an important piece of that. So yes, this um, this exhibit and now declaring Mia's 50th birthday, which of course we'll be celebrating, um, but now others can celebrate along with us.
1: That is just uh, so exciting. Mia would absolutely absolutely be honored. And birthdays were particularly special to mia not just hers, but everybody's right. Yes. Oh,
3: she loved to be the first one to call people to wish them happy birthday. Once I moved to a new time zone and she would call me from Iowa when I was on the West coast and wanted to be the first one that meant some very early phone calls, <laughs> but she would make us videos or, you know, do all sorts of things to celebrate birthdays. Um, and so um, and um, as Mia had Alzheimer's disease and with, uh, progressed with with her Alzheimer's disease, saying happy birthday was just something that could always make her smile. So we were celebrating birthdays all the time at that point.
1: Um, so having this be on her birthday is just really special. Jana Peterson, Bessie, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. And Leo Landis. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Charity, and Happy Thanksgiving to all IPR listeners.
1: Yeah, and to you too. Leo Landis, State Curator of the State Historical Society of Iowa. We've been talking about the new exhibit, Civics in Action at the State Historical Museum of Iowa, and in particular, Mia Peterson, who is one of the extraordinary Iowans featured in the exhibit. And Friday, November 24th, will be Mia Peterson Day in Iowa in honor of her and her advocacy for people with disabilities. The State Historical Museum of Iowa is once again fully open to the public. Their hours are 9 to 4.30 Tuesday through Friday, 9 to 3 on Saturdays, and admission is always free. This is Talk of Iowa.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa
1: from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. In recent months, a slew of new music memoirs and biographies have been released. It is actually somewhat dizzying. Dolly Parton, Lucinda Williams, Sly Stone, and so many others. Fortunately, Lindsay Moon of IPR Studio One has volunteered to be our guide, so we know how to use our time wisely. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I am a huge fan of memoir. I love music memoirs specifically, and I find this very exciting. What a crazy year, though. There are just so many of them. I think that... Yeah, I agree. There are so many people that are so influential that are aging, though. So I feel like there's just going to be this trend a couple years running.
1: (laughs) It could be. I also have a theory that during the the early months of the pandemic, when nobody could perform, they all sat down and started writing. So that's just a theory. We'll see if that (laughs) that is borne out. Um, so let's dive right into this list, Lindsay, because there are so many. Um, and let's talk with the new book by Lucinda Williams Don't Tell Anybody the Secrets I Told you and Lucinda Williams has such a strong
2: following. Such a strong following and also like has some interesting roots for some of her music in the Midwest that she mentions in this book. This is the one that I'm about halfway through right now. Um, And I think it's interesting to note that Lucinda Williams can't type. And so she wrote this entire book by hand in the same way that she writes the lyrics to her songs. And she had a stroke a couple years ago. And so knowing that after having a stroke, she came back and she wrote and a memoir of this length by hand is just amazing to me. And I think speaks to like just how strong of a person she is (laughs) in many ways. Um, I think it's interesting also that she's got an album out this year as well that kind of goes with the book that came out in June on Highway Records uh, called Stories from a Rock and Roll Heart. And... um, so I don't know. I think she's
1: sharing a lot of herself with us right now. She's such a an incredible lyricist too. I can imagine that a lot of her fans have been trying to to pick up stories about
2: her life through her lyrics. So now maybe you can put the pieces of the puzzle together. Oh, hundred percent. And the way that she writes in the book is also reminiscent of her lyrical work. And so some of the amazing turns of phrase and thoughtful messages that you expect from Lucinda Williams are very much throughout this book. Um, all right. I also want to note that in this book, she specifically mentions Iowan Bo Ramsey. Um, he played with her and opened for her 1994 tour when she recorded her album Essence. And I just think that's an interesting, like, Midwest fun fact Um Yeah, Like whenever Lucinda plays in Iowa, she usually has Bo open for her. And she's launched a couple of her tours uh, from the Englert Theater in Iowa City. And so if there's any book on this list that I think would be a fun Talk of Iowa Book Club, uh, Studio One, (laughs) All Access Collab, it would be this one. And I think it would be amazing if we could get them to play a concert and do like a book club talk. Wow. Very bold on-air advocacy. (laughs) Bo and Lucinda, if you're listening, I think that would be outstanding.
1: (laughs) All right. We'll see what we can do. Um, Next, let's talk about a new book from Quest. Questlove, and and this is a comic book called *The Rhythm of Time*.
2: Yeah, so I there's a story on Iowa Public Radio's website right now. If you go to ipr.org/slash/new uh, music, and uh, we talk about a couple of books for young readers at the bottom of this story. Um, and Questlove put together a comic book that's for I don't know. I might say anime fans, uh, but not really. Um, it's a the comic book is. Action And um, it's very well illustrated. Um, it's for fans, according to the review for Amari and the Night Brothers or Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky. Um, and it's about a seventh grader that like has kind of an ins- inspector gadget moment with his x-ray glasses and um, goes through time. And there are some music touch points in this book as well. And um, Questlove collaborated with it with uh, New York Times bestselling author S.A. Cosby in order to put this book together and I think that this is a really wonderful buy for teenagers for Christmas.
1: Nice. And also
2: invites the question, is there anything Questlove can't do? I don't think so, (laughs) personally. (laughs) Um, I also want to note that he did have a book come out uh, two years ago called Music is History for older readers. Um, And I think that that one is probably my favorite music book that came out in 2021 um, and is worth a read for older readers if you've not dug into that one as well.
1: All right. Well, let's dive now into the the grunge movement. This is my teen years. Mud Ride, A Messy Trip Through the Grunge Explosion by Steve Turner with Adam Tepp. I don't know how to say his last name, Lindsay.
2: I don't either, and I'm not even going to attempt to butcher it. But what I will say (laughs) is that um, Adam was uh, really embedded in the sub-pop records uh, music scene in Seattle um, uh, with Steve Turner, who was a journalist uh, for... Uh, alt rock publication in Nirvana when um, or alt rock publication in Seattle when Nirvana and Pearl Jam were coming up. And so this book is kind of an interesting like along the ride view is very much a piece of literary journalism more than it is a memoir about the time period. But if you're interested in grunge rock or the early prog rock from the 90s, uh, this would be a really great book really great book for you. <laughs> All right. Mud Ride, A Messy Trip Through the
1: Grunge Explosion. And and then, then we get on to Sly Stone, which is the book on this list I'm most, well, okay, one of the top two that I'm most excited about. But I also love that it has a foreword by Quest Love, because again, the man can do everything. Um, so this is Thank
2: You for Letting Me Be Myself Again by Sly Stone. And this is probably the unlikeliest memoir that we got this year, probably in In five years, I would say. So Sly Stone is a very interesting influential character from the late 60s, early 70s music scene in Northern California. And he's now 80 years old. And this man has been in and out of the news as... Like one of music's most interesting ghost stories and also somebody that has had, you know, a 50 year history of pretty serious drug use. He's recently gotten sober and collaborated with uh, The New Yorker's Ben Greenman um, to write this book. And I'm very excited to read this because there's been so much media about Slystone Stone and what he's been up to for the last 20, 30 years. But none of it's really come from him because he kind of ghosted public life in the late 70s. Um so yeah, I'm right. pretty so excited to read from this from The I'll, Man himself. From the Man himself. Ben Greenman also wrote a book about Prince that was pretty good, and so I'm interested to see sort of how they worked together to portray kind of like the darker part of the end of Sly and the Family Stone. Um, I'm also interested to see how they talk about and how Sly writes about being the band lead for one of the one of the first um, multiracial and mixed gender bands. From that, from that time
1: period. Thank you for letting me be myself again by Sly Stone along with Ben Greenman. Um, next up, you've got Lunacy, the curious phenomenon of Pink Floyd's dark side of the moon 50 years on by John Cruth.
2: Yeah, so there are a lot of books out about Pink Floyd. Um, I want to note that in addition to this book, if you've got somebody in your life who's a really big Pink Floyd fan, there's also a 50th anniversary box set repressing of Dark Side of the Moon on vinyl that comes with um, a hypnosis picture book of some of the art that went along with it. And so hypnosis was the art... House that did a lot of the album covers for some of the bands uh, that were coming up in the early 70s um, with Pink Floyd. And this book gets into that record specifically and why it became such a touch point. And they do also talk about hypnosis and the art on the cover and how that became a part of it. And um, for Pink Floyd fans, there's a lot of wonderful Christmas gift ideas out there this year. (laughs) This book with that box set would be a fantastic set for somebody who you know who's really into psych rock and early psych rock.
1: Right, who knew this would be your year? Okay, Lunacy, the Curious Phenomenon of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, 50 Years On by John Cripp. And then uh, talk about good timing, the new biography of Tupac Shakur, the authorized biography by Stacey Robinson.
2: So this is also... uh, a figure in music history that's had a lot written about him. This book specifically is one that I'm interested in reading because author Stacey Robinson uh, pulls from a lot of Tupac's private notebooks, letters, and other recorded conversations that he had with his mom. Um, and so if, if you're interested in what's going on with Tupac right now, I would say that this is a really interesting piece to dig in to find out a little bit about his early history and about some of the things about him that have been misunderstood over time. We've seen his case back in the news as Dwayne Davis has been charged with his 1996 murder. And I just, I mean, for somebody who was only 25 when they were killed, to have sort of the legacy that Tupac has, I think is really just incredible and very sad. And so I'm interested to dig into this book and see sort of, what his family's viewpoint has been on some of what's gone on. Um, yeah.
1: Tupac Shakur,
2: the authorized biography
1: by Stacey Robinson. All right. Somebody else who looms very, very large. We've got
2: a new biography of Madonna, A Rebel Life by Mary Gabriel. So I want to know, as we talk about this book specifically, that Mary Gabriel, Mary Gabriel is an incredibly intellectual writer. She's a really good author. She's had several books come out that have just been, like received to wide critical acclaim including the one that's mentioned on the cover Ninth Street Women Um, she also wrote a book called Love and Capital that was about Karl Marx uh, and his wife Jenny and that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award when it was printed Um, so I'm quite interested to see somebody with like the intellectual research and writing chops that Mary Gabriel has take on Madonna. Um, Madonna. Yeah. And like such a powerful pop figure. Um, This book is really, really thick. This is a long read. Um, The publisher went ahead and posted the bibliography and the Endnotes online instead of printing them in order to make the book uh, smaller. Something you (laughs) could
1: actually pick up. Yeah, something you could actually (laughs)
2: pick up. So note that if you get this book, it is um, maybe one that's measured by its weight rather than pages. (laughs) Um, That being said, Madonna had such an incredible influence on so many people, and she was kind of a den mother to um, some of her gay friends at the time, and this book really digs into that, um, and I'm quite excited to read this one as well.
1: Uh, Well, and uh, she's also told her story in so many different ways over the years that it'll be really interesting to have
2: sort of an outsider perspective that, that really takes a deep look. 100%. 100%. And the book is also kind of organized as a travel itinerary. So it goes through the seven decades um, like of her career and talks about how much traveling she did. And I didn't realize until I you know, started digging into what this book was about that Madonna lost her mother when she was really young and grew up with like half a dozen siblings in Detroit. And so some of the information that the book starts with about her early life, I found quite fascinating as well. So um, next we're going to talk about what I think is the most anticipated
1: musical memoir of the year. But maybe I'm just speaking for myself. I, I know that uh, Britney Spears has kind of been getting a lot of the publicity, but hasn't everybody waiting, been waiting for Dolly Parton to write about her life?
2: Yeah, so Dolly Parton came out with a memoir in 1994 called My Life and Other Unfinished Business. And this is kind of the follow-up that's specifically about her look and her style. Um, So Dolly Parton, Behind the Seams, which I think is a very cute title, uh, My Life and Rhinestones, um, has her talking about where her style came from why she's decided to have the look that she does. Um, She talks about the different designers that she's worked with. Um, And this book is more of a coffee table book than it is a true memoir. Um, It's got a lot of pictures in it. And I think it's really interesting that it was her niece that approached her and said, hey, your costume closet is amazing and I would really like to um, put the photos of you all together in a book and talk about that specific part of your life.
1: Yeah, 450 full color photographs.
2: Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Just beautiful. So I might suggest that if you've got somebody who's a really big Dolly Parton fan, that 1994 memoir, My Life and Other Unfinished Business, and this would be a really fantastic pairing.
1: And so we actually have a clip of Dolly Parton. This was a conversation just recently uh, during CBS Evening News, an interview with Nora O'Donnell. She uh, explains that she has never cared to follow current fashion trends, but she shares her first style inspiration.
0: I patterned my early look after the town tramp in our hometown. She just wore her hair all peroxided and piled on top of her head. She wore red <laughs> lipstick, eyelashes, long red fingernails, high heel shoes, short skirts. And I thought she was the prettiest thing I'd ever seen. That would be so in a little country kid's eyes. So, And everybody would say, oh, she's just trash. And so I thought, well, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up is trash. I thought that was just a term of how she looked, not what she was. And so I just love that look of looking cheap and trashy, I guess. And that slogan where I say it costs a lot to look this cheap, there's a lot of truth (laughs) in that, too.
1: (laughs) All right, there's Dolly Parton from the CBS Evening News talking about behind the scenes or behind the seams. It's a clever pun, hard to say. Behind the seams, my life in rhinestones. And you've also, you mentioned this before because we were talking about that Questlove uh, comic book, but you've
2: got a couple of books for young readers. Tell me about them. Okay, so I flagged the story of the saxophone, which is a children's book that was inspired by the 2001 PBS documentary, Jazz. And it's about how the saxophone was initially not a very popular instrument and how um, a couple of saxophonists, Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young, were instrumental, (laughs) haha, pun there too, um, (laughs) in helping it gain popularity in the jazz world. Um, It's beautifully illustrated. There was a really wonderful um, NPR feature story about this book, and I have already purchased several copies for the children in my life. Nice, the story of the saxophone, uh, and then one more. Yeah, one more. I've got a book that's actually from an Iowa author, a Des Moines-based musician, Ramona Muse Lambert, uh, who plays with Ramona in the Sometimes. She's also a part of the very loud and fun act to see live, Leslie and the Lies. Um, she's also best known, I think, in Iowa as the illustrator behind the hinterland hinter kids activity books so hinterland is a music festival print several thousand copies of like a, an activity book for kids every summer that they give away for free at the hinter kids tent and so this year um the illustrator that puts that book together wrote a children's book called fest friends um that's about uh some animals getting lost and discovering and experiencing the festival and um It's quite fun. The photo that we have is of her kids reading it. Um, And I I have a copy of this book. I bought it at the festival this summer at the Merch Tent. It's available online for order now. Um, And it's a really really fun book if you've got a music festival family in your inner circle.
1: Nice. That's Fest Friends, a Hinterland Music Festival Adventure by Ramona Muse Lambert. Lindsay you don't you don't have time for anything else if you're going to dig into all of these books so we'll see you probably sometime in spring when you reemerge <laughs> maybe
2: <laughs> <laughs> I also have been really interested in sort of like uh, the music that goes along with these books when I read music memoirs one of the things I like to do is put together a playlist um and like, listen through the music that's talked about in the book, because I think after you read what a lyricist or a songwriter has had to say about something, you listen to the music a little differently. Um, so I anticipate myself looking, th- reading through some of these and also doing some deep listening to some of the songs mentioned in them as well. Nice. Well, we
1: are out of time, but you can find all of these books on our website, ipr.org. Just look under Studio One and uh, you can read them all for
2: yourself. Lindsay Moon, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and happy memoir reading, everybody who loves nonfiction. (laughs) (laughs) Lindsay Moon of IPR Studio One. We're going out with uh, Rock and Roll
1: Heart by Lucinda Williams. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.